So believe it or not, we've actually made it to the end of these two little letters to the Thessalonians. Two letters that are, are widely regarded as the very first two pastoral epistles that Paul had wrote. And just by the way, just parenthetically, it's not part of the sermon, so I don't look for the text. Um, that's actually what I decided to do for a preaching series now, is I'm going to go through uh, the order of the letters as Paul wrote them. So I thought that's kind of an interesting maybe take on it, not the order that they appear in Scripture, but uh, the order that's widely regarded that he, he wrote them, since we started out with his first two, why not? Right? So, uh, pastoral epistles that he's, he's written, he's, he's ready to kind of uh, wrap things up with some closing thoughts to pull together all of the teaching he's been giving, uh, as well as to provide not only his original audience, but us with some practical words of advice for us to live by. So I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to, I hope you have your own Bible with you, or, or the Bible app, if you guys have our church app. How, how many people have downloaded the church app, by the way? Okay. If you want to follow along with what we're doing every Sunday, just open up the church app. There's a Bible right inside there that's the same, uh, same one that I'm reading from. Or of course, it's here on the screen, but it's really good to have it to take home with you so you can look at it again later. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the concluding section, verses 13 to 17. Listen for the voice of the Spirit. Paul writes this, For you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Father God, please bless the word now read to the edification of our hearts, the enlightenment of our minds. For our good, Father, and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, you know, it's been said that good theology is like a ship's ballast. It keeps us from, from listing too far to port or too far to starboard. Uh, and actually, it holds us on a steady course in the service of Christ. Whereas bad theology tends to, to pull us to extremes and can shipwreck us spiritually and leave us ineffective for the kingdom. And, and that's really the, the tug of war that the Apostle Paul has been playing out with the Thessalonians in this, these two letters of his that we have here that we've been examining. And he's been trying to get them basically to straighten up and sail right. I know that's not right. It's usually straighten up and fly right, right? But that's not, that doesn't work with my metaphor. So straighten up and sail right. Um, because they were taking blows from all sides, right? On the one hand, they were suffering really severe persecution for their newfound faith. But then somehow in the midst of that, the enemy got in a jab and slipped in some pretty serious misunderstanding about the expected return of the Lord. And the combination of those two just left them spinning in every area of their lives. And so Paul is attempting to, as one commentator said, get them to adjust their spiritual equilibrium and get them back on the right path. And you might have noticed we seem to be in need of that same kind of adjustment today. Amen? Amen. Uh, particularly, and it's really surprised me in the area of end time things, about how, how much it's coming up lately. Right? It seems to be coming up continuously. Believe it or not, I've actually gotten more questions 
on end times recently than at any other time in my eight years of ministry. Just just some this past week. Um, and I guess though, on the one hand, it's it's not hard to see why, from the the COVID lockdowns to the the, the war in Israel, the uptick of religious persecution not just here but around the world, to the inevitable globalist push toward a cashless society and social credit score. Um, Guys, the handwriting's on the wall that we're moving more and more rapidly toward the culmination of all things. And yet, as real as all those things are, and as prophetically significant as they may be, we must resist the perpetual failing of believers, stretching all the way back from the first apostles who watched our Lord ascend into the heavens, all the way down to you and me sitting here today. We've got to resist the urge to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Okay? It is why Paul has spent so much ink in telling the Thessalonians not to worry so much about Christ's second coming, but to stay busy with the work of the kingdom until he does. And why? Because he says the Lord of peace himself gives you peace when? At all times, whether he's coming today or in the future, right? At all times in every way. So know that he's coming. Acknowledge that we don't know when. And then live like you ought to be living until he does. Right? Know he's coming. Know that we don't know when. And then live like we ought to live until he does. Right now, unfortunately, though, that sound advice has not kept people, either then or now, from asking, but, but just how soon is he going to return for his church? Or how, how soon will he appear in the clouds in power and glory? How soon will the events described in the book of Revelation begin to play out on the nightly news if they aren't already. And it hasn't kept people from trying to set dates, has it? Whether it was the citizens of Thessalonica or the church of the first century. Or even just consider what happened at the turn of the very first millennium, right? In, in 1000 AD, when just, you know, the clock was about to tick to the year 1000, where so many people were predicting that Christ would return then that many farmers did not even plant their crops that year. Now, moving a little closer into modern times in the 1800s, a man by the name of William Miller predicted that Christ would return on or around April 3rd, 1843. And he actually convinced so many people of the veracity of his calculations that all over the Northeast, half a million of his followers gathered together awaiting the end of the world. Uh, reportedly, some of them even intentionally even set up their encampments on mountaintops hoping to get a head start toward heaven. <laughs> Seriously. <clears throat> Others of that same movement staked out local graveyards planning to ascend to heaven with their departed loved ones. Uh, but of course, nothing happened. And even within our own lifetimes, in 1988, a retired NASA engineer using all of his mathematical skills, a guy by the name of Edgar Weisenhardt, sold 4.3 million copies of a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. All right, how many people bought it? Okay. Which, which went into great detail outlining his reasons for believing that Christ would return on September 10th of that year. Uh, but, but of course he didn't, right? But that also did not keep the man from writing more books and selling more books with revised dates. And, and even, I have, I'm embarrassed to admit this, even some of our greatest heroes of the Reformation have not been immune from dipping their toes into the eschatological pool of end-time predictions. With no less than Martin Luther himself, my hero, 
sometime before 1520 in writing, we have reached the end time of the white horse of the apocalypse, and this world won't last much longer. And all of this confusion, every bit of it, because all of these people, even if only briefly in Luther's case, somehow lost sight of the fact that Scripture is crystal clear that concerning, as the Bible says, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So quit guessing, right? Just stop it. And guys, he's not about to tell us because if he did, I can almost guarantee you that for some people, the work of building the kingdom would come to a screeching halt. Right? Either because they'd say, well, it's only a few days away, so why bother? Or because it's so far in the future, they'd say, what's the use of doing anything now? And if you don't believe me, just take a look at the state of the American church right now. Where consistently for about the past 50 or 60 years, scores and scores of otherwise faithful Christian believers have taken their hands off the steering wheel of Western culture, reclined their seats, and just sat back and looked expectantly toward the skies. And don't mishear me. Please, please, please don't go away from here and misunderstand. Yes, we need to be looking anxiously for Christ appearing. But we dare not do it like the slack-jawed apostles in Acts chapter 1. Who the, who the Bible says, and while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? And church, we need to be asking ourselves that same question. And we shouldn't need any angels to have to come down and tap us on the shoulder to remind us we have got a job to do. Regardless of whether Jesus is returning this afternoon or another thousand years from now. And, and again, like I've been saying in the sermon series, not because I say so, not even because the Apostle Paul advised that, but because Christ himself taught us that. Right? If you remember the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus was passing through Jericho and he was talking to some folks, <clears throat> we read where it says, uh, and as they were listening to this, as they were listening to him speak, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they, because the people around there supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. And he summoned ten of his slaves and he gave them ten pounds and said to them, do business with these until I come back. And, and I really, really like how the King James Version puts it. The King James Version says that he said to them, Occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. The great Reformed writer and preacher J.C. Ryle produced an evangelical tract on this. Now, not the, not the cool tracts that Gary gave us. Um, not like those tracts, because the tracts that this guy wrote stretched almost 900 words. And those are really hard to slip under someone's door. <laughs> or to leave on the tip of the table. Right? So it's like this 900 word trap. But he, he said of this, this is what he said in his trap. He said, Reader, I know a few words more searching and impressive than these four. Occupy until I come. That they are spoken to all those who profess and call themselves Christians. They address the conscience of every true believer. They ought to stir up all hearers of the gospel to examine themselves whether they are in the faith. It says, impress them on your attention. For your sake, remember these words are written, occupy until I come. By this, the Lord Jesus bids you be a doer of your Christianity and not merely a hearer. Occupy until it comes. And you know, when I, when I first read that, the, my immediate thought 
Um, was of that whole phenomenon that happened around 2010, 2011, that whole Occupy movement. You guys remember that? You know, like Occupy Wall Street, Occupy this, Occupy that. And I'm not really, I'm not trying to really lend them any credence, but at the same time, even though there was kind of far left-wing populist movement, they did manage to capture the public's attention with their zeal. And they ended up sparking these like-minded movements all across the globe, uh, all while lacking any centralized organization, any cohesive message, or even a common list of demands. Okay? They did all of that. And here we sit, with the very words of life and the means of salvation between the covers of one book, in a world with more professed believers and more Christian resources than any other time in our human history, and we can barely move the needle on inviting new people to church. It shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. We need to be busy with the work of the kingdom. And we need to seek to occupy every sphere that we can possibly influence. And know that that doesn't mean you have to quit your job if you're still working or come out of retirement if you're retired or become a missionary or a pastor. But instead, the challenge that Christ extends to you and me is for us to transform our everyday worldly affairs into work for the kingdom. And church, even in our post-Christian and politically correct society to find ways to turn everything you do into service for Christ. Because your life may be the only gospel that some people ever see. And to do it because every day of our life is a gift from God to be used wisely and for His glory until He comes again. That's why the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, put it like this when he wrote, And now, dear Christian, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he appears, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame in his appearing. And isn't that what we all want? Not to be ashamed at Christ's coming and to eagerly await his arrival so that he doesn't find us just sitting on our hands doing nothing, but instead employing the time and the talent and the treasure that he's entrusted to us for the advancement of the gospel. And church, that begins with us as individuals. Because when we seek to do that, we'll also want to seek our sanctification. We want to rid ourselves of immorality. We want to spend time in the Word. We want to stop gossiping about other people. We'll be motivated to break our habit of exaggerating our problems. And we'll worry less and start trusting God more. And we'll find a renewed vision to get involved in our church family and in all of its missions as the hope of Christ's second coming begins to motivate us. And to draw us out of our consumer men, uh, mentality about church. What can church do for me? And instead into a passionate desire to be involved in church. To serve God. And to love God. And to honor God. For all that he has already done for us. In the person and work of his son on the cross. And to start focusing on conducting our lives rightly before the Lord as his faithful servants. And church we do that by staying awake spiritually. And by being prepared to receive it with our lamps lit, shining the light of the gospel into every area we can possibly reach. Whether that be the local elementary schools with the Good News Club that we want to relaunch. Or the halls of higher education. And from the, the officials in our Florida State Legislature all the way to the floor of the Oval Office. So the question really is this morning, are you ready to do something? Are you ready for Christ's return? Not, not just so you can fly away to glory, but so that when you do 
when you get there, you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So are you dressed and ready for action? Is your lamp shining? Or are you still in your spiritual pajamas and half sleeping? A sidetracked by fear and worry over worldly pursuits. Brothers and sisters, there are things we know that we should be doing. There are things we know we should be doing. And we are not to be lulled into inactivity by the fact that the Lord hasn't come yet, or just because he might come soon. But instead, every day we're to be preparing for eternity, not frantically, not desperately, but responsibly and expectantly. So are you ready? I hope, I hope you are. But if you aren't sure, I want to share with you just briefly, just by way of application, I want to share with you briefly how you can be ready and how you can get right with God if you aren't. Because, you know, that's really the crux of everything we do here. That, that's, that's the whole point of our Bible studies and of our Sunday schools and of the weekly sermon and of the sacraments. It is not to fill our heads with a bunch of knowledge about God or to go through empty rituals. Now, that all those things are important in and of themselves. But the, the crux of it, the idea is to make sure we're prepared and ready to stand before him and church to give us the tools to take as many people with us when we go as we possibly can. By sharing with each other and sharing with the world just how much God loves us. And then he sent his son Jesus Christ to die in our place. And to pay the penalty for our sins in his own blood even though we don't deserve it. But rather as the Bible says when we were utterly helpless Christ came at just the right time. And died for us sinners. And it continues of course now uh, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though. Someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God shows us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us what? While we were still sinners. And thank God he did. Because without him, you and I have a very serious problem. We are separated from God because of our sins. And all have sinned and fallen short. And there's nothing that we can do to get across that gulf that separates us from God. Not good works. Not church membership or baptism or tithing. Because we are not capable of saving ourselves. And that's exactly why God chose to send his son to die in our place. Whereas the Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may be. So it's not psyching yourself up to some emotional experience. It's not having me manipulate your emotions into making a decision. Or, or force you to walk down the aisle because, folks, you can be saved right where you're sitting. By simple faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. A work that God set in motion before the foundation of the world. And as his plan is continuing to unfold, we are to watch and pray as we eagerly expect the Lord to return. And we're to watch knowing that no matter what happens in this world, that God is still in control. And he is directing everything for his purpose, even as we see evil and wickedness grow in the world. But even still, you and I can look forward without fear because today and every day, Jesus says to each and every one of us, Fear not, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. And it's our job to occupy it. To occupy that kingdom and to occupy all of our time with revealing its reality. And so with, with that in mind, I want to close again with a couple words from J.C. Ryle from that trap. He, he, he said this, The Lord Jesus bids you occupy until he comes. By that he means you are to do his work on earth like one who continually looks for his return. You're to be like the faithful servant who knows not what hour his master may come home. 
but keeps all things in readiness and is always prepared. You're going to be like the one who knows that Christ's coming is a great reckoning day and to be ready to render up your account at any moment. You are to fill the station to which he has called you and be ready to go from your place of business, whatever that may be, to meet Christ in the air. You are to rise and go forth in the morning, ready if need be to meet Christ at noon. And you are to lie down in bed at night, ready to be awakened by the midnight cry, Behold, the bridegroom comes. You are to keep your spiritual accounts in a state of constant preparation, like one who never knows how soon they may be called for. And you are to measure all your ways by the measure of Christ's appearing, and to do nothing in which you would not like Jesus to find you engaged. This, he said, this is to occupy until Jesus comes. Amen. At church, this table is a great place to start. Because it is not only the ultimate expression of the worship experience, but it's visible signs encapsulate the whole message today and the fact that the Lord's Supper is pilgrim food. It's pilgrim food. Because just like the Passover meal it commemorates, it's a meal on the way somewhere. It's to be eaten in haste, fully dressed and ready for action with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand in preparation for a journey as it directs all of our attention through our senses to what Christ has already done for us and where Christ has placed us and where he is about to take us in the advancement of his kingdom and the real world work that he has left for us to do. And then we are to occupy until it comes. We pray with you. God our Father is truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you, by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.